Good morning, everyone. Um, this morning we've got two readings uh, from Isaiah, one from Isaiah and one from Colossians, and you can follow along on the screens or on your devices or in your analog Bibles if you have one of those with you. So the first reading is from Isaiah chapter 52, verses 7 to 10. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy when the Lord returns to Zion. They will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people, who has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy when the Lord returns to Zion. They will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. And now the second reading, uh, which is Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 18. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Herapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. 
Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Have you ever heard of writing a gratitude letter? Have you heard of this phenomenon? There's a psychology professor named Martin Seligman who he gets his students to write a thank you letter as part of a class exercise and then to personally deliver it. And he saw some really positive results from doing this, including some, some results from controlled studies. Even to the point that he found that not only did the letter writer's happiness scores go up, but so did their depression scores go down and the effects lasted for well over a month. That's a pretty amazing result, don't you reckon, from just from writing a letter expressing thankfulness to someone. I've heard, um, actually, some psychologists say that they've found getting people to write a letter of, of thanks to a parent, even when the relationship has kind of broken down, they've found that to actually have a hugely positive effect in reframe, reframing the relationship. Robert uh, Eamon's a professor of psychology and a gratitude expert, whatever that is. Wouldn't you love that to be your title? I'm a gratitude expert. He says gratitude makes us appreciative of the value of something. And when we appreciate the value of something, we extract more benefits from it. We're less likely to take it for granted. Now today, we're finishing Paul's letter to the Colossians, written about 30 years after Christ was crucified. And I don't know if you've noticed as we've been going through this letter, but this is a letter full of gratitude. And it's a letter that encourages us to be full of gratitude too. It's a letter trying to help us appreciate the value of, of what we have if we follow Christ. Have you noticed that as we've been going through? Look again at some of the things we've seen. Look at chapter 1 verse 3. Paul wrote, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And he prays for them in, in verse 12, that they themselves will give joyful thanks to the Father. In chapter 2, verse 7, he, he tells them to keep faith and carry on, but not in a bleak kind of way. He says, overflowing with thankfulness. And then in chapter 3, verse 15, as a community there to let the peace of Christ dwell in their hearts, since as members of one body they were called to peace, and be thankful. Then in the next verse, they're to sing to God with gratitude in their hearts. And then just in case we, we've missed it, somehow in the very next verse, in verse 17, he says, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In this letter, again and again, we're told to, to appreciate, to, to value what we have if we have Christ. Now, why am I, I starting like this today? It's because as we come to the end of Colossians, we're going to be talking about prayer and we're going to be talking about leading people to Jesus because that's what Paul talks about here. And it's amazing how we tend to frame these topics in our minds. It's amazing how quickly we think of prayer and of leading people to Jesus through a framework of obligation and guilt and feeling condemned. 
But is that the framework that Paul gives us in this letter? Is that the framework you've noticed over these last six weeks or however long it's been? Where do we see obligation and guilt and condemnation? The only place that we see it that I can think of in in the whole letter is when it's taken away from us and nailed to the cross. Look again at, at chapter 2, verse 13. Paul writes, Jesus forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the t- charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And so today, as, as we touch on prayer and as we touch on evangelism, we need to remember that we're moved to these things not out of a sense of reluctant duty or feeling condemned or guilt. We're moved to them by setting our hearts on Christ, on what he's done for us. And that means we can't help but come to these things with, with a sense of thankfulness. Let's see if we can do that as we work our way through this. Across this, um, this letter, we've seen, you might remember, that the gospel is bearing through, fruit throughout the world and in our lives. And so at the end of this letter, we see that this means three things. It means we should devote ourselves to watchful, thankful prayer. It means we should act with wisdom and speak with grace towards outsiders. And it means we should keep faith and carry on in partnership with others. Let's have a look at each one of these things in a little bit more detail. So first, devote yourself to watchful, thankful prayer. Look again at at chapter 4, verse 2. Paul writes, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Now, on on the one hand, even as we saw with the kids, this is super easy to understand. It's very practical. All you need to do is devote yourselves to prayer. It's easy, right? But on the other hand, as I've already hinted, This is very easy to distort, actually. You know, I could approach this like an engineer and and break it down into some kind of Gantt chart like this. I could say to myself, right, if I'm going to devote myself to prayer, then that will mean praying for a certain amount of time each day at multiple points during the day, covering a certain breadth of the topic. I know what I do. I'll make one of these. And maybe for some personality types here, you know, that that could be a way to devote themselves to prayer. But probably for most of us here, I'm guessing that would be missing the point. We'd be conforming on the outside, appeasing our conscience, impressing ourselves a little bit even, but not at all setting our heart on Christ. A few weeks ago on Father's Day, um, we had a video where some of the kids were asking their dads questions to see how well they, they knew them. Remember that? It was great, very cute. You know, questions like, what's my favorite color? What's my favorite drink? All sorts of things. And some of the dads did really well, and some of the dads not so well. <laughs> but imagine that one of those dads, you know, watched that and thought, man, I really need to know my kids better. Uh, the pictures are not representative of good and bad, by the way, of um, who did well just in case, just caught someone's face then and thought I should uh, clarify that. But, but imagine someone did um, not so well and they thought, right, these next 12 months, things are going to be different. So they quizzed their kids. They made up some flashcards that they just do each day. They, they worked hard 
memorizing the answers. And in next year's video, they just blitzed it. They just knew everything instantly, and they made all the rest of the dads look like complete duds. But meanwhile, over that year, while they knew their kid's favorite color, imagine if they missed that their kid was really struggling with friendships or was really excelling in sport and at school. Imagine if they they put the hours into the wrong place with the wrong motivation. And for all that effort, would they actually be being a devoted dad? Of course not. Now, it's a bit of a silly illustration, but if we're honest, isn't that a bit like how we think we really should approach prayer? We think if we're to seriously devote ourselves to prayer, it looks something like that, like flashcards and putting in the hours and a discipline and a lifestyle change that's about as appealing as going on a diet. And that, that's devoted prayer in our minds. But that's not the essence of devoted prayer at all. Look again at verse 2. Paul writes, Devote yourselves to prayer being watchful and thankful. These last two words, watchful and thankful, they help us to see what devoted prayer looks like. Being watchful is literally the idea of being wide awake. And Paul isn't saying here, don't drift off to sleep. While you pray, I mean, that probably is good advice, but he's saying so much more than that. He's saying, be awake. Being watchful is actually the idea of of being alert to seeing things God's way. Being alert to seeing things God's way. And when you see the big picture like that, well, that shapes how you pray. Think of what we've seen as, as we've gone through Colossians. We've seen that God is working in his world by the gospel bearing fruit. That's the way God works in this world, by the gospel bearing fruit in the world and in our lives. The gospel is about Christ reconciling all things to him. The gospel is about how we can be forgiven by him and reconciled to him ourselves. And as we set our hearts on Christ, our King and Saviour, we've seen that we're to become more and more like him. And together we form this community where Christ's peace rules us. Now, if we see the big picture like that, if we feel the the momentousness of of the big picture like that, what is going to be the natural outcome? We pray. We pray and then I'll I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll keep praying. Because the more I see that in Christ really is every single treasure I could ever imagine. And the more I I feel that there are other alternatives trying to take my heart captive, the more I see that, the more devoted to prayer I will be. And the more I see that Christ really is my life, my identity, my life, So that I need to put to death what doesn't belong to me anymore. Sexual immorality and greed, anger, slander, all those things. I need to clothe myself with the character of Christ who is my life. The more I see that and how difficult it is, how impossible it is for me to do on my own, the more devoted to prayer I'll be. 
If I'm watchful to, to see things God's way, I'll pray. And it won't be begrudgingly or driven by guilt. I'll be thankful that I've got a father who is listening constantly all the time. A saviour who understands my struggle. And the Holy Spirit who is powerfully at work within me, helping me, changing me. This is what real devoted prayer looks like. And if we hold that strongly, clearly in our minds and hold it strongly in our hearts, then we can start to think about what this might look like in our day-to-day lives. And, yep, for the engineer-type personality, that could well be having a prayer Gantt chart. Who knows? But for the rest of us, it might mean things like using a journal, somewhere where we write down our prayer points, or a prayer app, that sort of thing, or some other way that helps us genuinely, devotedly pray. For me, um, personally, I find that praying frequently but simply helps me. So as I get up, uh, as I go for a jog, I pray for the day. As I drive places, I pray about where I'm going and what I'm going to be doing before I make a phone call. I pray about the conversation. And if you had to hear what I'm praying, you'd find it incredibly tedious and unimaginative. Thankfully, you don't have to hear. And thankfully, God doesn't mind listening to my prayers. I find praying frequently like this, it helps me think about things from God's perspective. And as I was um, this week preparing this sermon today, I realized just how easily I let go of praying for the big picture. I don't know if you find this, but so easily I find I, I just let that fall to the side. And it's motivated me, actually, to think through how I'm praying. And, and for me, I, I realized using an, an app called PrayerMate, I actually find really helpful. It's not that PrayerMate's anything special. Really, it's just like a, a journal that prompts me to pray for different categories of things. And I've stopped using it for a while, but it's motivated me to get back to using it. I, let, let me give you an example. Um, some of you remember Dave Harrington. He did a ministry apprenticeship here and we sent him off to college a couple of years ago. It occurred to me that I really only think to pray for Dave pretty randomly and superficially. But then when I pulled out Prayer Made as I was preparing this sermon and I looked through it, I saw, oh look, there's, a, there's Dave Harrington in my prayers and then here's all these points, really thought through points, that I could pray for him. Now, which is more watchful prayer? Uh, that one is, and, and prayer made is a helpful tool in that. But the point is, what's going to help you pray in a way that's watchful to the big picture of what God is doing in the world, of what he's doing in your life? What's going to help you pray for his plans in your life, in the lives of those around you, in a way that's watchful and thankful? Now, at this point... Paul goes on to give a specific example of what devoted, thankful, uh, watchful prayer looks like. Have a look at verse 3. He says, And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message, so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ, for which I'm in chains. Now, do you notice what Paul asked them to pray for? He asks for open doors, but not for him even though he's, he's a literal prisoner at this point. But because he's so watchful to what God's doing in the world, 
He prays that there'd be an open door for the gospel message. Does this sound unrealistic, unattainable? But actually, this is just what happens. As we start to bring things to God in a watchful, prayerful way, we'll find ourselves not praying simply for temporary comfort or relief or healing. We'll find ourselves praying, Lord, heal my sickness if that's your will. But if it's not, at least use my sickness to open doors to Christ's message. We'll find ourselves praying, Lord, in this this struggle that I'm going through, use it to clothe me with Christ's character. Or Lord, in this hurt that I'm feeling, teach me to forgive the one who's hurt me like Christ has forgiven me. We'll find ourselves praying that above all else, God would open the door to his plan, his glory, his gospel. Now, if if you're like me, um, you're probably inclined to feel a little bit guilty that your prayers aren't often like this. But the answer is not to try harder. The answer is not to come up with a better app that has more demanding notification settings on it. The answer is, yet again, to set your heart on Christ. Because when we do that, we actually won't be able to help but start to pray like this. The gospel really is bearing fruit in all the world and in our lives. So of course we'll devote ourselves to watchful, thankful prayer. And then next Paul tells us we will act with wisdom and speak with grace towards outsiders. Have a look at at chapter 4 verse 5. Paul writes, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Paul's asked them to pray for open doors for him with outsiders. And now he turns to them and he tells them how they should approach outsiders. And Paul does two things here that are quite countercultural. First, he's completely honest about the distinction that he sees between followers of Jesus and those who don't follow Jesus. He unashamedly sees humanity divided into those who are in Christ and those who are outside Christ. Those who are in Christ are those who are reconciled to the creator and the savior of this world and those who are outside of christ are not at all reconciled to their creator to their savior they're facing his judgment now it's hard to think of a more absolute distinction between groups in humanity those who are in christ those outside and paul is completely upfront and honest in saying that 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 distinction is real and it's drastic Now, our world is um, quite divided when you think about it. Our society is more divided than ever. And we're also more hostile about the divisions. We tend to, all of us, we tend to live in bubbles protected by people who think differently to us. And so in this world of hostile divisions, how are we told here to treat the outsider? How should we treat the outsider? Well, here's the second countercultural thing that Paul says. Because while he labels people who don't follow Jesus clearly as outsiders, he doesn't tell us to treat them with hostility or with mistrust. Nor does he tell us to cut them off or try to cancel them. 
or to try and control their conduct. He doesn't do that. Notice that? Don't try to control their conduct. Actually, he tells us to look at ourselves and our own conduct. He tells us to shape our own actions towards them with wisdom. We're literally, he, he literally writes, we're to walk with wisdom with outsiders. Now, as we think about what this actually means, this is where we need to keep the rest of the letter in mind as well. Because in chapter 2, verse 6, we were told to walk with Christ. In chapter 3, verse 7, we were told not to walk how we used to walk. And throughout Colossians, we're told over and over again that in Christ is hidden all the treasures of wisdom. If we want to find wisdom, we'll find them hidden in Christ. So Paul is telling us here, first of all, that we're to continue to walk with people who aren't followers of Christ. We're not to be in a Christian bubble, kind of cut off from them. And second, we're to walk with them with the wisdom that comes from knowing Christ. In other words, we're not to be two different people. You know, we're not to have our Sunday here kind of persona and our, our mid-the-week kind of persona. In fact, how we relate to outsiders, it's not to be shaped by them. It's not even to be shaped by ourselves. It's shaped by the wisdom that comes from Christ. Who I am in Christ, I am to them as well. I don't take off compassion and humility and gentleness and and patience and and neither do I put on my old self when I'm with them I walk with the wisdom that I have from being in Christ now the reality is that that we will feel a a pressure to conform that that's human nature we'll feel a pressure to conform at times that's why Paul writes this and wisdom means that I, I won't respond to that pressure by caving in and conforming But equally, wisdom means that I'll not respond to that pressure with hostility and with going cold and distancing myself. Instead, I'll walk in the wisdom that comes from having my identity in Christ and my character, my conduct will be shaped by Him. So are you wise in in how you relate to outsiders, how you conduct yourself around those who don't know Christ? Are you wise Who calls the shots? What calls the shots? Is it your desire to fit in that shapes how you act? Or is it your desire to be be distinct that shapes how you act? Or is it your desire to walk in wisdom with Christ that shapes it? Look at chapter 4, verse 5. Paul then adds, Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. And the idea here is that the time is limited and it's passing us by. And so we need to make the most of it. Remember, Paul's speaking to them in the context of asking them to pray for open doors for himself. And he's saying there'll be plenty of open doors for them too. There'll be opportunities. But even before those opportunities to speak about Jesus, they may need to make the most of every opportunity. Every opportunity to walk in wisdom. I don't know if we think like this, but it has the sense here that time with outsiders is precious. Every moment counts. Every action counts. And actually, Paul says it's not just our actions that count. It's also our speech. Look at verse 6. 
He says, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So Paul's told us, shape our actions with wisdom. Here he says, shape our speech with grace. We're a people, aren't we, who truly understand God's grace. We understand his generous, undying favor towards us that we don't even deserve. We understand that. And one of the effects of God's grace is that it fills our speech with grace at all times too. Now, if we you know, reflect on how we speak, is that the way that you speak? Always generous like God in how you speak. Always full of goodwill towards people even when they don't deserve it. Are we like this with each other here? Are we like this with people who don't know Jesus? Are we like this on Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat and whatever else I don't understand that's out there? Are we like this? And is it genuine? Because speech like this is, is striking. If it's genuine, it's winsome. It's hard to get enough of speech like this. Paul says it's kind of like it's, it's seasoned with salt. You just want more of it. It's a testimony to a deep and profound power at work in your life in a real and tangible way. In the staff room, speaking about the boss or the students or the customers. With friends, speaking about our kids or our spouse, politicians or our mother-in-law. Speaking about the, the condescending woke left or the out of touch far right. You know, there, there are so many times that speaking always full of grace is just so challenging and that's what makes it so striking. And the truth is, we'll only be able to do this if we set our hearts on Christ. The challenge of this, it, it drives us to watchful, devoted prayer, doesn't it? But as we set our hearts on Christ, as we pray... God really does change the way we speak. We stop being the ones who complain at work all the time. If we've got real concerns, we're the ones who raise them through the right channels with truth, but always with grace and gentleness. We stop being the ones who slam the government. If we've got issues, we talk to our representatives. We stop being the ones who gossip or slander even when we've been horribly mistreated. We take the right steps to talk to people. It's clear to everyone that whenever we speak, we have the good of others generously in mind at all times. And this is not being merely polite. Do you see that? Polite is kind of for amateurs and imposters. Grace is so much more than being polite. At the cross, as, as Christ was crucified naked for you, at that point, the grace of God was being poured out for us. That is anything but polite, isn't it? Grace is Jesus crying out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. That must have been hard to say and even harder to mean, but Christ said it and he meant it. 
And we're called to speak with that kind of grace, not politely. And when we walk in wisdom like this and speak in grace like this, Paul expects that there's going to be real opportunities to speak about Christ. And when we get those opportunities, when, when those opportunities come up, by living this way, if we're living this way all the time, we'll be ready to take them. When someone notices how we live and says, how come you, you live like this? We'll be ready to answer because action by action and, and conversation by conversation, we'll already be carefully thinking, how do, we, how do I live for Christ as my Savior and Lord in this situation? And when someone in their time, on their terms, asks you what, why you believe what you believe, that's a God-given opportunity to put into words what's constantly going through your mind and constantly in your heart. Now, you, can, you can tell here in this passage, this is all about longing for open doors and it's all about making the most of open doors. What it's not is about kicking down doors. And so again, this is just another thing that drives us to watchful, devoted prayer. This drives us to pray that we'll speak and act in a way that makes us ready to answer. It drives us to pray that those opportunities, God will bring those opportunities to the surface and that we'll see them when they come up and that we'll have the courage to take them when we see them. And again, it's not at all about reluctant duty or guilt or feeling contempt. This is about privilege. It's it's a privilege when God opens the door and it's a privilege to answer someone in that situation. So we've seen the gospel is bearing fruit in all the world and in our lives, which means of course we'll devote ourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And it means of course we'll act with wisdom and speak with grace towards outsiders. And then finally we'll see that it means that we'll keep faith and carry on in partnership with others. Now, at the end of, of this letter, you see, you see clearly that Paul's a real person writing to real people. You can just see that in, in what you read as you read through it. You, you get a glimpse into their world and into the partnership that they had in seeing the gospel bear fruit in the world and in, in their lives. You see one church caring about another church. You see all sorts of different people coming and going all over the place, pouring out their lives, serving each other. You see a whole heap of people who, just like Paul, get the big picture, see the big picture. And so they see that what matters is the gospel bearing fruit in all the world and in their lives. And you even get an insight into how it is that we have this letter in our hands, unchanged even to this day. Paul tells them to make a copy of it and have it read in the, in the churches nearby, in the nearby towns. And no doubt those churches, seeing the value of this letter, would have done a similar thing, made copies and then had it read in nearby churches. And here we are 2,000 years later, like the Colossians, like the Laodiceans, having our hearts lifted to Christ too. And feeling, again, the privilege that it is to be partners in seeing more and more people live for Christ. We're partners with generations of Christians that have gone before us, like Paul, like the Colossians. We're partners with each other here. Partners with churches like Trinity Church Golden Grove and Paraka and Campbelltown. We're partners with all sorts of other churches in this. 
partners with AFES and partners with people like Maggie Cruz in Cambodia as well. We want, to see, we want everyone to see how great Christ is, this world's creator and saviour, this world's only hope. And so we devote ourselves to watchful, thankful prayer. We act with wisdom and we speak with grace towards outsiders. And we keep faith in Christ. We carry on with Christ and in partnership with others to lead people to him. That's what we've seen over this letter. Let's pray that God will keep it on our hearts and minds. Father, um, we have seen some amazing things in who Jesus is, supreme over creation, supreme over salvation. The one who gave his life in order to take up from us every reason for condemnation, every reason for guilt. We thank you that he has taken that up and nailed it to the cross in his death in our place. Father, help us to have such a clear picture of this, that a clear picture of what you're doing in the world and in our lives, in our church community, that we are naturally driven to prayer. We're naturally driven to want to treat other people with kindness and respect in the hope of having the opportunity to point them to you, to lead them to Jesus. Lord, help us to be partnered with each other, with other churches, with people overseas, longing to see your name glorified. The door open everywhere to people coming back into reconciled relationship with you. Lord, help us not to forget these things as we finish the series in Colossians. Please write them on our minds and hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.